What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. If you've already heard about the two great companies which support this show, CoinKite and River, skip ahead 70 seconds. If not, permit me that time to tell you why they might be of interest to you. CoinKite offers the products you need to securely store and use your Bitcoin. Recent events have once again shown, for many painfully, why it's so important to get your Bitcoin off exchanges or any other third party and take custody of them yourself. Do not wait to be another victim of their incompetent, fraudulent, or malicious behavior. The whole point of Bitcoin is to eliminate counterparty risk and avail of the unique freedom which that provides. The cold card is a time-tested, Bitcoin-only hardware wallet for doing just that. Taking self-custody may seem intimidating at first, but there are many resources available to guide you every step of the way and help you to experience just how empowering and liberating taking back control of your money can be. To get more info about their excellent lineup of products, visit coinkite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their dedication to service, stellar team, and custom approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Let's do it. We're live. Harry, how you doing? Good. It's weird to hear that name because it's definitely not my real name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so fellow, first of all, uh, you know, fellow Newf. Yeah. Where are you from in Newfoundland? I was born in Buren. Uh, and then when I was three, we moved to Grand Falls, Windsor. And then I stayed there until I was 21. Uh, and then we moved to BC. And I've been in BC ever since. Cool. How about you? I'm from St. John's um, and lived there until I was 21, I guess, and then moved to China and never really went back other than a, a couple stints. I mean, I've been visited, uh, you know, every year usually, uh, but only stayed long-term once or twice, like for a year in that 17-year period. Um. Not that anyone will care about this at all, but I'm curious what was, <laughs> what was growing up in uh, Grand Falls like. Uh, I would say it wasn't that bad. Um, <laughs> I think I was lucky for the schooling that I got and the class that I had. Like I was in French immersion, so it was like a consistent class all the way through. Um, right. And like having moved to BC, I kind of look back and admire how not woke it was back then. Right. Um, like basically the mentality around like uh, race and stuff like that was what I consider to be still the ideal, which is just colorblind, um, just kind of treating people for who they are rather than what they look like or whatever. And then since moving to BC, I've kind of gradually, I think I was so innocent when I moved here. And then I just kind of uh, started seeing this like woke um, just, very racist view of the world, um, which has been kind of surprising. Um, but yeah, I, I still look back at Newfoundland and be like, they have the right, the right uh, mentality around it. Um, why do you think? Why do you think that is? I mean, it's always been been like a attribute of Newfies, you know, that they were friendly and inviting and that kind of stuff. And I would say probably particularly the case like around the bay, right, like outside of uh, St. John's. But why do you think that is? That uh, you know, the people there 
had that attitude. You know, they weren't kind of tainted by, you know, more mainstream or uh, I don't know what you want to call the views that see people through, you know, the lens of race or religion or that kind of stuff. But, you know, the woke viewpoint, broadly speaking. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't have, I don't think I have a great theory on it. Um, Do you think that's I just did. like, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, you can go ahead. I was just going to say, like, do you think that's just kind of like simple rural people generally, you know, like, uh, and maybe, maybe those that have had a bit of a harder life than like the people that lived in a urban environment where everything perhaps was more convenient. Like, I don't know, because it's, you know, you, you usually get that kind of down home vibe from rural people, right? Like, look, be honest, do your work and. I don't really care about any of your other immutable attributes or characteristics. I'm generalizing, yeah. of course, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that might have something to do with it. I'm. I would say that the most recent time that I visited, uh, it seems like, um, like the uh, gender stuff has become front and center. Like every single group that I ran into ended up talking about it at some point. So really? I guess they were, I would think they were more sheltered in the past right, right, from right. like social media stuff. So that has started to, I think. But are you talking uh, about younger people or this would even be the case for like the older crowd? Uh, it was a quite a mixture. Like I know some friends who are teachers, so they had issues in their school with uh, LGBTQ stuff. Um, and then like uh, other adults, like they all knew about the uh, teacher in Ontario with the fake uh, <laughs> um, it was so everyone was talking about that um, was that a troll like was that dude just trolling a question <laughs> i feel like i heard some reports or comments or you know some 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 passing scroll on twitter that like this, the dude was just making a farce out of it all to prove a point but then the story kind of fizzled out which kind of makes you think that was the case because it really like uh like a lot of people got wrapped up in it and if it turned out to be a farce and there was an egg on their face i can see why they kind of wanted it to just you know, go away. Yeah, totally. But I don't know. I don't know what actually happened. <laughs> um, actually, one thing I was surprised with last time I visited Newfoundland was uh, the amount of people who were one talking about inflation without me bringing it up, uh, and then two like in support of uh, Pierre Polyevre. Uh, that was actually pretty surprising. Like people who I would never would never talk about politics really. Um, but it well, seems like good. they are. Yeah, I think they're hurting there in terms of the economic situation and people yeah. who are making like 50 grand a year and have a family. And now they're like really seeing what inflation is doing to them. So that was definitely a positive. I feel like one of the things that um, seems quite common in Newfoundland, Atlantic Canada, but even in, in Canada more broadly, because, you know, Canada's among the, let's say, uh, so-called nicer or at least more pacifist sort of uh populations is that kind of mentality you know let, let's say newfoundland right like it, it's known for being welcoming and open and friendly but that kind of mentality can easily be can easily allow for really stupid and harmful policies to be to not receive the requisite pushback because people kind of want to go along to get along and they're kind of pacifist and they, they don't want to be seen as being not like um 
lacking compassion or lacking, you know, consideration or respect. Like, and I guess, you know, the easy way of saying that is like, there's, there's, there's kind of a lot of de facto virtue signaling because of that. It's because like people just will adopt what, you know, the dominant frame suggests is the virtuous perspective or point of view on something. And very few people want to upset the apple cart. I mean, that's, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here and there's many, many uh, exceptions, of course, but you know, that's one of the things that always has grinded my gears, let's say about Newfoundland. It's like, there's just, there's not enough. It, it doesn't seem to be to me to be enough people that will just stand up and think for themselves and have the, the courage to, to say so, you know, everyone just kind of like, Oh, like this is what good people do. And this is what, you know, the nice friendly perspective on things is okay. Like that's what we'll do because we're nice and friendly and good. And I just like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's pretty off putting to me that so few people are willing to stand up and, and speak their mind and develop, you know, develop their own perspective, number one, and then have the courage to speak it. But um, it's good to hear that people are at least open to a different perspective, I guess, represented in, you know, kind of uh, being supportive of, let's say, Pierre, even though it's in the political realm and all the the drawbacks of that, but at least it's, uh, you know, representation that they're open to change, you know, from what's been the dominant perspective and political ideas of the last, I don't know, decade. Yeah, I would say what you described with the like kind of complacency. I've seen that just as much, if not more, in BC as in Newfoundland. Um, Yeah. That's a very like liberal woke haven too, though, right? Like I think that (laughs) Eastern Canada has always been very liberal and Western Canada has always been very woke and politically that'll mean NDP, liberal, green sort of mix. But I mean, you're in, you know, BC is possibly one of the most woke places in the world with, with possible exceptions of like, you know, Western sea, like Western coast of the US and New York and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, to me, like if we're gonna talk about things that are not great about Newfoundland, um, to me, one of the biggest things growing up and I especially felt it when I moved is the lack of like entrepreneurial spirit in Newfoundland. Mm. Um, I feel like in the on the West Coast, it's very much like you can build something, you can like make a difference to things, whereas Newfoundland is is like, I mean- Get a job with a the big, government. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people who stay in small towns, that's what they end up doing. Um, yeah. And then the government's tentacles, although like if you look at Newfoundland, you think it's like a way to kind of escape uh, escape things like this nice wilderness, uh, this island with a small population, but really the government has its tentacles like all across <laughs> Newfoundland. And uh, it's really like, you can see how it could have caused a lot of the problems there with like the fisheries and then people going on EI and doing the Mm. EI rotation where they, they plan it to be laid off so they can maximize the amount of EI they get. Um, And then looking at like the obesity there is absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I guess it's a good, a good place to look and see if Bitcoin eventually fixes it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bitcoin will eventually fix everywhere, I guess. So uh, Newfoundland will be swept up in that, whether they like it or not at some point. And I, you know, I hate to be hating on it because I absolutely love the place. I mean, you know, Agreed. Mo- most of us love the places that we're from. And I just like, I just think, of course I'm biased, right? But I just think Newfoundland is like a magical sort of place. Like it's just, it's, 
it's different and I love it. And every time I go there, I, you know, I have a very strong connection to the place, but obviously I'm, I'm critical about how things operate above the surface, let's say. And yeah, you're right that, you know, government is a massive employer on the Island. I'd love to know precisely how big of an employer, but I, I think it's probably in the, probably over 20%, maybe well over that. I, I, I don't really know, but I'm sure it's huge. And and the you know the population like you said i mean again there's a lot of entrepreneurship but in relative terms you know pe- people want this is the problem that the the state the 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 perverse incentives that the state as an employer and the state as the dominant capital allocator uh generates is because like why wouldn't you want a job with the government you have very few responsibilities you have all the benefits you have reasonably good good pay you have a consistent increase in pay over time you you have tremendous job security like it's 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 the primary like no other job offers the same incentives unless it's a job where you have much higher upside for reward but it's going to require much more work from you and much more uh much like a much broader skill set and that kind of stuff but if you just kind of want to coast why would you want any other job than the one with the government it, it ticks all the boxes as well as they can be ticked and that's the problem and, and everyone ends up working for the government, working in an industry where there is no incentive to innovate, where there is no incentive to be capital efficient, and you just get misallocation, capital destruction, and you get the situation they're in, which both the the province and the country are in, which are basically they're bankrupt. And the only thing they can do is continue to print money or ask for federal bailouts. But but as you know, the federal government is effectively bankrupt as well. And so, well, what do you do? You print money until the whole thing goes to shit, basically. I don't see, you know, and that, to be fair, this characterizes a lot of other places around the world. The, the, the allure of government spending and government empo- government employment is is great everywhere, and that's you know very much by virtue of the fact that they have that magical money printer in the basement, and so they get to direct the incentives. They get to generate. They get to have the dominant incentive in the market, and so they get to offer all these jobs and all the, this 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 type of compensation and security and stuff. And no wonder. And, and of course it crowds out the private markets, obviously, because it's competing for that capital. It's competing for that, uh, those human resources. Like it's just, it's so obvious, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I is. guess so few people see it. Um, yeah. And speaking of like coasting. So I think, I think so much of Newfoundland is set up to make that coasting lifestyle. So appealing in that, you have the government paying people with these safe jobs. And then uh, like, although Newfoundland is beautiful in, in its nature, like the outdoors, it's also got the miserable weather. So it's easier to just kind of stay inside, eat crappy right. food, drink beer every weekend, and then just get into this repetition of just uh, going to like a com- comfortable job where you're not doing anything and then mm-hmm. getting fat. And <laughs> I mean, I hate saying so much negativity because Newfoundland is beautiful, but yeah, the (laughs) incentive, like you said, I really try to look at the incentives of everything. I think, is it uh, Charlie Munger's quote? Although he's kind of lost my respect lately, but um, (laughs) you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Right, right. It definitely applies uh, big time to Newfoundland. And yeah, I really am. I'm hoping that we, they can transition to, um, the Bitcoin future, I guess, without too much pain for all these people who are uh, kind of trapped in a kind of government cushion. 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, any, anything can happen, right? I mean, my overarching philosophy is that nobody is coming to save you, right? And you have to save yourself. And so don't hold your breath for, you know, the political winds to change. I mean, just opt out and opt in to what you think is right and good and productive and, and all that kind of stuff now. And if everyone were to do that, then we'd have something more akin to people making free choices for themselves and, and all the benefits that, that that provides. Um, but that being said, I mean, uh, it's helpful if there's more open-minded leadership, you know, whether look at someone like Bukele in El Salvador, you know, whatever your take on his, him is, it's probably, he's probably been a net benefit for the people of El Salvador in terms of the opportunities available and the freedoms available and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Polyev is kind of another good example of that. And Danielle Smith in Alberta seems to be another example of that. I mean, she's very much uh, anti all the bullshit that's happened in the last two years, anti the woke stuff, anti the WEF stuff. And, you know, I don't know the details of this uh, Alberta Sovereignty Act that she's now tabling, but like, that's good. That's, you know, getting away from the overbearing control of of the central federal government and at least bringing that down to a more local level um that's great and and having someone there who's more open to different ideas i think that at least makes it easier for the case to be made for something like bitcoin to to have a more favorable treatment number one so so individuals can more easily make that choice and then if they want to do anything on a, a provincial level then who knows um so there's a possibility that that could happen in newfoundland but again it's not really known for leading the way with new ideas and taking risks and that kind of stuff. I mean, they, you know, they, they've kind of been pacifists, you know, like, well, sure, we'll, we'll do what you want us to do. Just give us, give us some money, basically. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to stop now because I, yeah. I, I hate myself for being so negative on them, but you know what I'm saying? Like uh, that, that possibility exists. So hopefully um, some sort of change happens there and people you know, wake up to new ideas and they're willing to take the responsibility themselves to pursue them. So fingers yeah, I mean, crossed, I guess. <laughs> ultimately, it's the sooner they see the Bitcoin future, the better, because <laughs> uh, either they're going to come across through pain or they're going to come across through curiosity and uh, like hope for a better future. Yeah. Um, speaking of politics, uh, one thing I've like, I've kind of been thinking more and more in the uh, in the way that as Bitcoiners, we're almost becoming our own nation in a way. Uh, oh. And to me, I feel like more patriotic towards Bitcoin than any <laughs> country. Um, and it's and like if I traveled somewhere, some people like to go to like a pub where it's like a Canadian pub or an American pub or whatever. But it, to me, it'd be much more appealing to go to a Bitcoin pub. Of course. Um, and I just think that mentality of like joining this nation in a way of like very competent people with like higher values and integrity and who value truth um, is just such an appealing thing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I, I mean, that's natural, right? Because you identify more with people who share your values. And so like, obviously there's a lot of shared values wrapped up in why you might be interested in Bitcoin and, and, and all that jazz. So, but I, I and I think, I think I wrote a piece about 
maybe before Bitcoin 2021, basically about that, you know, and saying that Bitcoiners are my people and, you know, Bitcoin is basically my country. That's what I feel the most identified with and the most allegiance to, um, not, not the place you know, again, like I, even though there is some weird, uh, connection to the physical geography where you were born, uh, that's kind of where, you know, like I, I don't buy by default, feel that same degree of alignment with everyone else who was born in that same geographic area. But we were, I was talking about this with someone like yesterday. Um, and, you know, the ideal case would be there's no passports, right? And just, we go back to the way it presumably was like in the late 1800s or something where, you know, people can travel more freely. But if we're still going with that model, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have like a kind of Bitcoin passport as like a, you know, and countries would favor it you know, because they wanted to attract Bitcoiners and their capital and, you know, intellectual, financial, and otherwise, um, wouldn't that be kind of like a, you can, I mean, it's not that far-fetched, I guess. I mean, if more places pop up, you have El Salvador and Madeira, and I think this trend will continue a la sovereign individual thesis. Um, what bet, you know, how do you identify yourself as a so-called Bitcoiner? Is it just like signing a, a transaction or is it, a proof of some kind? Is it, you know, getting a passport and that being the proof? Like, who knows, right? But it's kind of fun to think about um, how your identity with that sort of a group might be expressed in the future. Yeah, and that brings up an interesting question of like, what is a Bitcoiner? And then <laughs> versus someone who just holds Bitcoin. Right. Um, I think it's, it's always going to be valuable to be able to identify who's a Bitcoiner because that tells a lot more about them than if they're just holding Bitcoin in the hopes of um, getting more U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. um, what but do I feel think? like, what do you think a Bitcoiner is? If I can put you on the spot, I know it's a it's an ongoing discussion about what what you know legitimate answers are. Let's say, but what's your opinion? Um. To me, a Bitcoiner is someone who is genuinely interested in using Bitcoin as their money. So that means Bitcoin has an infinite demand to a Bitcoiner. So it's not like, oh, I got in early, so I'm going to cash out later. That mentality is completely antithetical to being a Bitcoiner. The, so a Bitcoiner would say, I want to have more Bitcoin next year than I do this year. I want to have more Bitcoin tomorrow than I do today. Um, so that's kind of I think a key aspect of it. Um, and then also just how you, if, if it's, if it's your main, uh, issue in how you vote and how you, uh, make decisions, um, and like your principles around it, I don't like, if you create an exchange that has a bunch of garbage on it, uh, I think that's antithetical to being a Bitcoiner. Um, yeah, I, I and then also seeing the, if you believe that Bitcoin is going to bring about a much brighter future and it's not just, just like a financial asset. Mm. Yeah, you, I agree. Um, and obviously there's no right answer to that question, or at least no one has a monopoly on the right mm -hmm. answer. Um, but it does seem like you would, your philosophies would almost have to be imbued with the, the attributes or the, the results of the attributes of Bitcoin. So like in the things that it either prohibits or permits, like if you adopt it as your money and you think it should be kind of the basis for 
or, or you think it will be the basis because of its attributes of value exchange, money, you know, global trade, civilization, um, you would you would almost you'd have to de facto accept some of those principles, which is why I always find it somewhat strange that there are like so-called communists or like socialists or progressives hmm. that call themselves Bitcoiners as well, because it's one thing to say, I believe in, I don't know, charitable causes, or I'd like to commit some of my capital to helping the underserved or whatever. But Bitcoin itself does not permit your property to be violated, at least insofar as it's held in Bitcoin, right? And so you can't, how can you adhere or ascribe to a political philosophy that requires that, that requires the the uh, redistribution of wealth in order to fill in the blank, do whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, I feel like that's a weird, um, maybe kind of cognitive dissonance that hasn't, that people maybe haven't fully resolved within themselves yet. Yeah, um, I'm curious to see how many people who get into Bitcoin transition from being socialist or communist to uh, more libertarian leaning um, as that kind of, they have to face that cognitive dissonance eventually. Um, yeah, I'd be really curious to know like how many people have changed. I, for me, I was very much uh, like libertarian borderline anarchist uh, long before, before I uh, okay. before I got into Bitcoin. So I think I was a Bitcoiner before I found Bitcoin. Uh, it's kind of the best way to describe it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I fall into that category too, but I'm, I'm intrigued because um, <laughs> I, I'll say this kind of in a funny way, but I don't meet I don't meet that many anarchists from Grand Falls. So <laughs> what was your... It's uh, lonely there. <laughs> <laughs> what was your story in developing that sort of philosophy on things? Uh, my uncle recommended Free to Choose to me, uh, the Milton Friedman book. And I ended up watching the series uh, when I was in university. Uh, and then I didn't even know the word libertarian at that point. But I knew that like the way people look at government in such a superficial level and thinking that it will solve problems without considering uh, the collateral damage or the other effects that it has. Um, like I really understood that and I wanted a smaller government. And then eventually in like 2015 or so, I found out about the Libertarian Party. And then I was like, wait, I'm not like I'm against or I'm for gun control because I'd never thought about it uh, in depth. And I just assumed, oh, it's safe in Canada. It feels right. safe. We have gun control. And then I made that like connection where I shouldn't have. Uh, but the, yeah, then I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of of uh, what libertarian principles are and that I love things that are logically consistent. And uh, I've always been in math, uh, like math's always been my favorite subject. Um, so yeah, it's just so consistent and it's so easy to find flaws in the reasoning of any other uh, ideology. So, um, and actually around, so around when I found out about libertarianism is also when I found out about Bitcoin. Um, but then I, I read the white paper. I was such a purist that I didn't want to buy it on an exchange. I wanted to buy it from an ATM. And uh, I just did not get around to it. Um, and then the, the ATM at the store that I was going to buy it was gone because the store closed down. And I was just like, oh, that's okay. I'll buy some later. 
And I, I think around that time I was turned off by, I realized that seven transactions per second and I was, I'm a software developer. So I heard that and I was like, okay, so this is like not going to get us what we need. Mm. And I didn't have the foresight to see that it could have layers on top of it. Um, so then I just kind of said, oh, I'll just kind of wait and see what happens. I don't need to take any risks at this point in my life. And then I heard of it like going up and down and up and down. And then uh, actually when Elon Musk bought it, I was like, okay, maybe it's time to look at crypto again. <laughs> and I still just saw it as like crypto. I did not realize um, the difference between Bitcoin and the rest of it. Um, and then actually from there, I actually, <laughs> I got into Monero um, because I thought, I thought like, fungibility Like a good was... anarchist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, I knew that fungibility was something that bothered me when I studied Bitcoin before. So it was fungibility and uh, the transaction limits that kind of impeded me or I saw them as problems for, with it. So yeah, then I got into Monero for a bit and then eventually I watched a Svetsky uh, video where he was talking, he was on a Monero podcast and he just made great points. And then I said, okay, I need to dig in more to Bitcoin. And then ever since like finding Jeff Booth and Michael Saylor and like your podcast, I've just become completely obsessed, but I'm a relative newcomer, I would say, because it's only been like yeah, a year like and a half. A year. Yeah. It feels like it's been like five years. Cause I've just <laughs> every, I'm just like, so in engulfed in uh, Bitcoin stuff that, yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin time is weird, man. Like I, I, <laughs> I just think about the, I remember the March 2020, like sell off to 4K or whatever. Um, and like there was a Swan podcast that we did, like with Guy and Brady and I don't know, a few other people. And we were just, you know, kind of seeing how everyone was doing, right? Like, how's everybody feeling about this big sell off? And, you know, most of us were just like checking the couch cushions to see if we could find any loose change or anything like that to buy more Bitcoin. And, um, and that feels like a decade ago. And I guess it's, I guess it's coming up on three years ago, but mm -hmm. it feels so, so long ago. So I, I understand how, I mean, everyone has that impression that Bitcoin time is just like, it distorts time in, in, in some weird way. But um, <laughs> what's it, you know, you said you were kind of a, a Bitcoiner before Bitcoin, at least, you know, philosophically and politically and that kind of stuff, um, you know, I, I love to discuss and I'm fascinated by kind of what you just described. Like when, when the penny drops and people actually get what's going on, then like kind of a lot of things can change, right? Your perception of a lot of stuff, this, an understanding of this really bleeds into many other areas and that can be very impactful or influential in people's lives more broadly has the last, you know, year and a half since that that's happened to you been interesting in any other domains or has it, have you refined your, your thinking in, in, in other domains or in other ways or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I would say it, I feel a lot more, uh, peace, <laughs> like internal peace right. and less conflict. Um, I've always been like, I like to save my money. I don't like well, to spend it. Sorry to interrupt. Let's, let's, uh, sure not gloss over that first point first like and of course i know exactly what you're referring to but I'm, I'm just curious like how do you think that's being generated you know like what peace in relation to what like what where where does that 
put some meat on that bone for me. Okay. Um, I've, so I'm a minimalist and to me, the idea of working and storing your savings in Bitcoin is just a minimalist like dream. Uh, not only in the sense that it's a simple thing, but um, the fact that you take full custody of what you are, of your property, um, and that you don't have to worry about investing in companies that you might find morally unacceptable. Mm. Um, there's nothing more frustrating to me than like buying stock in a company and then they do something that I just completely disagree with, like Apple recently with AirDrop. Um, yeah. So just being in something where like you're aligned with it, like practically morally in, in so many ways, it just aligns. Um, and it's just simple. Um, so I actually, so I've, I'm a software developer. I was working at a agency for like five years and then I left that job and I felt like, uh, very uncertain about the future, I would say. Um, and then basically I was looking at, okay, based on how much money I'm making, uh, I'm not going to achieve like the financial independence that I want. That's always been my goal. Um, and so I was like, okay, I need to work on my own. I need to take more risks. And um, I left my job, which I actually love that job. Um, and then since discovering Bitcoin, now I see it as it changes the trajectory for anyone who, like for their career, basically. So whereas, uh, whereas now you, you need to take those risks, you need to invest in things. And then if you make the right bets, I would say you can achieve decent wealth or if you're okay uh, having your balls in a vice by the government right. by taking on a lot of debt. Um, and I hate that. But then the simplicity of the Bitcoin alternative, which is it's better to work in the present than it is in the future always. So like you could be a janitor one year and make the same as what a doctor will make in five or 10 years. So you're highly incentivized to work. Um, you're rewarded for working in the present and then that savings will much more quickly achieve financial independence. Um, and then as you become more financially independent, I think you'll be able to uh, take more risks in investing and actually invest in things that you're passionate and care about. Um, so if that's the future that Bitcoin creates, then that's what gives me peace is feeling like, okay, I can, I've actually returned to the job I left um, because I want to collect more Bitcoin. Uh, and then hopefully I'll gradually be able to work more and more on the projects that uh, I'm passionate about. Right. Which itself would bring you more peace, right? Because you're more focused on and more devoting of your time and attention to something that energizes you or something that brings you joy and fulfillment rather than exactly struggling against your own, uh, you know, your own resistance, let's say. Yeah. And being able to, remove so much noise. So like yeah. before Bitcoin, I was like, we're looking at stocks. I was looking at real estate. I have no interest in buying a house. I have no interest in maintaining the house or any of the property tax or caring about what the government does in the area. Um, but just being able to remove all of that noise and just throw it out. And then it's just Bitcoin. And then the other things you care about um, and just, yeah, having that ability to just kind of relax um, and focus on what you want to focus on is the best gift. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And that, and I asked because like so many people have 
explicitly said that. And of course, a lot of people are feeling it. And it is a sense of peace and also clarity, like every, just things become much more simple and things become much more quiet inside. And that reduction in noise and that simplicity allows you to identify and focus on things that are of greater value that you may not even have had the time or capability of, of even discovering before. And now you get to discover and then, you know, slowly refine that and figure out how you're going to engage it more fully. But, you know, it, it is, it's so fascinating that when you have something that you have such a high degree of certainty is going to be there for you in the future, and you have such high conviction on the principles on which it's predicated, and you have such a high conviction on the process that it's currently in the midst of, like, again, like you, you don't have to worry about doing all those financial activities that otherwise, you know, that to ensure that your money's there for you in the future, right? As you said, you know, speculating in real estate or in the stock market or anything. You also don't have to encounter that resistance of like, and let's say very few people invest in this way, but it sounds like you're someone who at least consider these things like, well, I don't want to invest in companies that do stuff that I don't agree with. And, but do I have to, because that's how I get my returns and that's how I preserve my capital. And so that's a type of noise. That's a type of resistance that you can just let go of and it, it can wash away. And there's so many things like that, that, you know, that just Bitcoin allows to, or helps to dissolve. And then you're just left in this state, almost like, it's not like this was planned. You just kind of realize over time, it's like, and then another huge, you know, element of noise, let's say, is the risk of someone else custodying your wealth, you know, and before we just accepted it, right? Because every asset more or less like had some form of counterparty risk, if not complete counterparty custody. And once you are able to fully custody something yourself, all that other stuff just seems way too risky. Like I, you know, I look at, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any assets other than Bitcoin primarily because I look at them. I'm like, no, no. Like you're telling me that my access to my capital and the optionality that that provides me is contingent upon business hours, trusting management teams, trusting, you know, security protocols and technology stacks and, jurisdictions and governments and incompetence and malice of the individual like all that stuff no fucking way i don't like that is a ton of noise and concern that i don't want to inject into my awareness so and bitcoin allows you to do that and it's only over the course of time that you realize how peaceful and how quiet and the the focus that 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 begins to emerge or that begins to be permitted by that reduction in noise you know it's, it's not it's not really talked about that much but it's seems very real to a lot of the people that I talk about it with. Yeah, I, I wonder how this could be used as an orange pilling thing <laughs> to uh, maybe I should focus on that more when worry, I'm talking. Worry less about everything by Bitcoin. Yeah, it lets you, <laughs> like the simplicity of it. Although, yeah. Enlightenment in, a, in 12 words, something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually, speaking of custody, that's as a as a developer. That's one thing I'm quite opinionated on. Um, I know this is not a particularly technical podcast, um, but I feel like there's still a lot of there's a lot of risk in how many people are managing their Bitcoin, and they don't realize how much trust they're still putting in certain certain companies um, when they do it. Um, I'll give. One, yeah. I guess two yeah. examples. Elaborate. Tell me where you see so like, the risk. 
a big one is CASA, which is in the spotlight right now. But I've always looked, when I looked at that from the beginning, it's one of their main plans is a two of three multi-sig. And um, the model is they have one key, you have one hardware key, and then you have one key on, on their mobile wallet. Yeah. yeah, but on the phone is in their app. Right. And so anyone who uses that cut that system, Casa owns their Bitcoin from a theoretical perspective because mm -hmm. Casa owns the key, Casa owns the software. The software is closed source. They could put whatever they want in there and they could take your key. Um, so like the fact that I was kind of surprised that that is not scrutinized more heavily uh, given that it's like their whole point of existence is to make sure you don't lose your Bitcoin, yet they're taking theoretical custody. Um, and then another example is cold card, which is a great device. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but the amount of trust you're still putting into the cold card, if it's your only signing device is huge. I mean, it doesn't matter what keys you press. If you are rolling dice to give it randomness, you're still trusting the cold card did the randomness, uh, did the, like that the hardware has integrity. Mm -hmm. Um, so well, wouldn't that be advice, the case for, for most, if not all hardware wallets? Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Trezor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just picked cold card because it's considered the like recommended one, but if you just get a cold card, you're still putting tremendous trust in that company. Um, so the safest route, in my opinion, although again, as, as you get safer, it becomes more complicated and that adds risk as well. But really you should have multi-sig that you set up yourself. Uh, you should use three separate providers of the keys. Um, so like Coldcard and Trezor, and I think SeedSigner is one of the better ones. Um, and then you would flip coins to generate your, uh, your, 12 or 24 words. Um, mm -hmm. Seed Signer has a feature so you can go from the, uh, well, actually you, you have to flip coins, then you have to figure out what words those coins are. And then you use Seed Signer to find the 12th or 23rd, 24th word. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so like that whole area though, I feel like there's still a massive amount of trust being put on these companies when someone just buys a Trezor or whatever they buy. Um, oh, and then that's not, the one last piece about the technical side, uh, once you have those three, three devices, um, you end up with your XPUB for receiving uh, Bitcoin. You then, whatever software you use to generate your receiving address, you're putting a massive amount of trust in again, because it could just ignore the XPUB that you've given it and generate from its own, uh, from its own list. Uh, so really you should have two separate softwares for telling you which Bitcoin address to use. And if they don't match, uh, then you can know that there might be something up with one of them. Mm -hmm. um, that's just taking things to the extreme, but it is, <laughs> it is acknowledging where you're putting trust. So we're putting trust in the software that tells you which address to receive on. We're putting a lot of trust in the hardware of the wallets and we're putting a lot of trust in whatever software um, we're using and really like the redundancy of having two separate things that are not the same company is a big deal for actually making sure that you're not losing your money. <laughs> yeah. 
I noticed um, Seed Signer published something or tweeted out something like two days ago, and it was a bottle of pills, and it was uh, the the words, you know, like the bit. Yeah, was it thirty nine words? I think uh, so. Uh, like one on each side, so that you could, you know, put them in a, a bag or a hat or whatever, and you could pull them out and generate your seed that way. Yeah. Um, instead of like actually just printing them out and cutting the paper, which is what I did. And that's a oh, yeah. big pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I totally agree with your point. And I think this is part of the journey, right? Like Bitcoin isn't a, okay, I've made the decision. Like I I've just adopted Bitcoin. Now I'm a Bitcoiner and that's the end of the road, right? Like I think every aspect of this from the technical to the philosophical, the political, the personal, all that stuff is a journey. And, you know, it possible, most likely one that never ends. Like, I don't think you ever get to the end of any of those things. Like they're always kind of, if for no other reason that they're always interfacing with the actual world and they always require adjustment and, and mm -hmm. as a result of that interfacing. Um, and I do, you know, so, and I think there's, there's probably still a lot of innovation to be done in, in the realm of custody and helping people be more comfortable with their custody setup. Like, cause when someone's just coming in, you know, I, I think it's pretty well established that most, most Bitcoin loss has been through user error than mm -hmm. malicious hacking or, or anything like that. And so for someone first coming in, like getting it off exchange or getting it out of the wallet and getting it in some sort of recoverable or hardware sort of setup, that's probably sufficient until they've become comfortable with that and they can look at some of the other areas that that you mentioned which are definitely worthwhile but not yeah you have to be you know they're just going to be overwhelmed initially absolutely you know? so I've, I've been banging on on the, the 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 like the hashtag 12 magic words things because like i just want to get it into people's minds that all of this freedom that we speak of and this optionality and like this whole bitcoin renaissance and and the orange realm and all that stuff we talk about it's on the other side of your exclusive access to 12 words effectively. And it, obviously it gets more complicated from there, but I just, cause I think a lot of people may, may like, like a lot of normies may even get sold on Bitcoin. And then someone tells them like, Oh, well, you, you know, you got to do this and you got to get these 12 words. You got to make sure mm -hmm. they're safe. You got to do that. And they're like, Oh uh, yeah, I, I didn't really sign up for that. I was more into the whole, like get wealthy and not have to, you know, pay attention to bullshit politics and that kind of stuff. But I think if you start with, Bitcoin is about your exclusive access to a set of information. That information is 12 words. Like if that was part of the initial pitch rather than like, oh, by the way, you need to do this. Like don't sell them on all the, all the amazing, you know, potential of Bitcoin. Like I, I, I think, because that's a, I mean, to me, a compelling enough pitch in itself. It's like, wait, you're telling me that like all of these things that you're just talking about are on the other side of establishing my exclusive access to 12 words. Like that's my... <laughs> portal in and I, so i can have all that great stuff you just mentioned and i just got to figure out how to custody exclusive access to 12 words yeah pretty much it's like i don't know i find that in, like mind-blowingly compelling but i don't i feel like it hasn't kind of been framed that way and part of that is the broader noise of the shitcoin industry and false perceptions about all this stuff and the continued use and comfort with third parties which ironically is you know what this whole thing is about is is eliminating those but um but yeah i think if you start with the hard part basically mm -hmm. um 
you won't get people excited and then get them put off. I think you'll just like, I think it'll be a smoother way into all this. So that's, that's why I've been banging on about it lately. Yeah, yeah. I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. My last point about custody was, you know, this, this Casa, Casa business recently, of course, I think it's unbelievably stupid, but um, on their part, but you know they have the they have the data, right? So maybe there's actually not that many hardcore Bitcoiners or Bitcoiners at all using their service, and there's a hell of a lot of demand from Ethereum, and maybe they're just choosing to uh, follow their economic incentive, and you know all the other reasons why you might not do that be damned. But what I found you know interesting in all the responses is it seems like to to the extent that people were using them. Um, I'm just surprised that so many people are are willing to dox their their stack basically like to to give up that degree of privacy over their their funds you know to uh, yeah that that was the biggest surprise for me or one yeah that's yeah. a good point i don't i doubt people even consider that yeah you don't want to you don't want to make it public how you store your bitcoin um, no and then you know other people presume possibly lots of other people know exactly how much bitcoin you have I mean, how much of yeah. a security yeah. problem is that and or a problem with, with regards to whatever state actions come down the pike in the future? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, just the, the less information, obviously, the less information <laughs> that you share with anyone, the better. And that's sharing pretty significant information with you don't even know how many people. Yeah, I think on the flip side of that, one thing that uh, do you watch Matthew Cratter on YouTube? Uh, don't think so. Trader University. Oh, it's like, oh, it's so good. Um, he's a he's a Bitcoin maxi uh, or Bitcoiner. I don't know what he'd prefer. Trader but, University. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Michael Saylor has tweeted a few of his videos, but it's like a daily short, like 10 to 20 minute video. And he goes into like so much depth on so many topics and it's fantastic. Um, I, yeah, I can't recommend him enough. Um, but anyways, he, he put out a video explaining how he custodies his Bitcoin. And I think in his case, it was actually smart to do it because the way he presented it, he was showing his multi-sig setup where it's like he's in different locations and it's basically to deter anyone from ever trying to steal his Bitcoin from him. Because as a public figure, if someone thinks that he just like stores it on, in his head, then he's putting himself at risk to a like the five dollar wrench attack. Yeah. Um, whereas if you make it public that you have this setup where no wrench attack is going to work, you're kind of protecting yourself. No, totally. And I, I mean, I guess it always boils down to what's your threat model. Um, mm -hmm. But in those cases, I mean, if the biggest threat in the future is government and not wrench then, you know, yeah, it's pretty easy for the government to acquire that information about who owns what and therefore where to place the resources and, and all that jazz. So, I mean, it's all about trade-offs, right? And it always is. Um, but I just, again, I was just somewhat surprised that the privacy consideration involved in a service like CASA was, I guess, uh, accepted by by so many that were now writing those emails like, my service is canceled, I'm fuck you guys sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the one, so back to the CASA uh, 
they're supporting Ethereum now. Um, what I find, what I find frustrating or more unacceptable, like I don't care if a company does whatever, what they can do whatever they want, but it's when a company builds their reputation around Bitcoin under the, like, so they're suggesting that they understand what it's all about. And then they go and do something that to me is like, it's going against what Bitcoin is hoping to accomplish. So it's similar with Nick Carter who invested in it is that if you are supporting a lot of these garbage projects, uh, you're saying that you don't understand Bitcoin while pretending to understand it. Exactly. Uh, because like, especially if you're wealthy, like there's no excuse, you have the wealth, you can invest it in things that will, there's infinitely many things you can support that would support Bitcoin. And there's infinitely many things that would not support it. And why would you choose one of the ones that does not support its cause? Mm. Um, so that's where I really find it frustrating. Even if these people, uh, like Nick, he's definitely released some great uh, information. Um, but yeah, there's, I find that to be fairly inexcusable. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And I was, I mean, even just before coming on this, I was thinking about those very people. And I was like, man, it's crazy to me how many how many people still don't understand what's going on here. Now I'm presuming that I'm right. And of course I could be wrong, but if I am right, it's crazy to me how few people still understand it. And of course, a potential rebuttal to that is no, they well, I don't know. Cause I was gonna say they might understand it, but you know, greed can maybe they're be being driven by greed. But I I still I don't know if you if you really if you really got Bitcoin, I, it's hard for me to see allocating capital to services or projects or you know other stuff that would take away from uh, increasing your allocation to Bitcoin or or betting on companies that are exclusively focused on building on on Bitcoin. I guess it's not so black and white, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like for. It, it comes down to this question of like, what what's your primary motivation and what is your primary decision-making variable? And I think, you know, in, in fiat world, we've just become habituated to following the price signal a lot of the time, despite the moral dimension to those decisions. And I think in a Bitcoin denominated world, one, that the price signal will be more moral just by virtue of the fact that it's it's incorruptible, but that won't be total. And so, but I do think that moral dimension of decision-making, especially let's say market or financial decision-making will be far more prevalent, will be a far more uh, important aspect of making these decisions and, and being more clear, like, well, what is, like, where should the moral line or the principal line be drawn on this particular issue or this particular investment or this particular whatever? Uh, and I'm looking forward to that because it's something that I wonder myself, you know, I'm not, I don't always know like what's right and what's wrong basically. And I wish there was more discussion about like what is right and wrong in any given circumstance. Um, and again, I think Bitcoin provides a remarkable tool for making that way easier just on its face, basically just by using it. But I also think it's awesome that those concerns, those more ethical concerns seem to be, uh, seem to be emerging in the so-called Bitcoin culture as well. And no wonder, because I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the protocol, the basis of that culture, i.e. in Bitcoin has those, you know, certain principles imbued into it. And I think they, 
it's being pushed out into people. And then we, we figure out what the explicit ethical sort of, uh, dimension or dynamic is and, um, all the better, right? Because, you know, hopefully that means we have a more ethical world. If, if those issues are more top of mind and they're given more space to have open dialogue about, and then people's decisions, the, the degree to which people's decisions are aligned or depart from that is more apparent and people can be, can uh, confront the consequences of that, right? Can the, the social consequences of making decisions that are more clearly, uh, that the, the ethical dimension has been more clearly determined, something like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that's going to be the case. Yeah, I like to, I like to think of things under like first level ethics or first layer ethics and second layer ethics. And the first layer is the obvious ones that, I mean, some people think they're obvious, like don't uh, assault, don't mm. fraud, don't uh, fraud, don't lie, etc. And then second layer is more like don't promote garbage on your podcast <laughs> um, to make money. And I think a lot of people just ignore the second one. They're like, it's a free market. Like, yeah, but within a free market, you can still be virtuous or you can uh, not be virtuous. Um, and I do think Bitcoiners care a lot more about being virtuous uh, while like during their financial um, adventures. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was you mentioned, you think you're right about Bitcoin, but you're not sure. Um, or like you wanted to be somewhat humble about it, I think. But uh, I was talking about this the other day with someone and they talked about like if Ethereum happens to like surpass Bitcoin. And, and I realized like even under that situation, um, like Bitcoin success, large, like Bitcoin is money, money relies on participation of people. Uh, so I think the will of Bitcoiners makes kind of the future a lot more certain. Like it doesn't matter what Ethereum does. It doesn't matter what any other thing does. If, I, if I've made the decision that this is gonna be my money, then to hell with what happens. It's up to me, it's not up to other people and I'm gonna use it. And the more people that make that decision, the more it's an, an inevitability um, that Bitcoin succeeds. So to me, I guess you could say uh, I'm something of a martyr. Like hopefully I won't have to be, but like, it's Bitcoin is the currency I'm going to use uh, for the rest of my life. And it doesn't matter what else happens as long as, as long as it keeps functioning. Um, mm -hmm. Even suppose there was a successful 51% uh, attack, like a, a nation state non-economic actor just pumps out empty blocks. Um, Bitcoin, the ledger will not be harmed and we can always look for a way to um, circumvent that to switch to a different hashing algorithm or whatever, just to make it inexpensive. Like mm -hmm. as a Bitcoiner, I'll sit and wait while they do their nonsense and waste money. And then I'll start using it again as soon as they're done. Or as soon as we find a way to continue using the same ledger um, under whatever uh, proof of work, or even, even if it was something else to me, it doesn't, I do think proof of work is the best solution. But to me, it's about the ledger and what the information, who owns the UTXOs um, more than anything else. So 
I guess that also gives me peace to think that it's an inevitability in the sense that I don't give a fuck what other people do. I'm using it and yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I'm a hundred percent with you. You're like, I say that just, you know, as a disclaimer, like no knowledge is perfect. Right. And nobody mm -hmm. can tell the future and, and who the hell knows, right. As, as yeah. convicted as we are. And as, as you say, as, as much as our, own decision is a, is a big part of that outcome. And so you can have a far greater degree of certainty over it because, you know, you're intimately involved with it. I was just saying like, who the fuck knows asteroid hits or, you know, the, the future is uncertain, but I, I definitely yeah. agree. And I think that that is an important point generally is to realize that, you know, our participation matters. And it's not just like there's the objective world alone by itself and, you know, our social or conscious world alone by itself, like the two intermingle and that's what generates the world. And, you know, this is part of when, when some people, you know, the, the critics or the haters or the fudsters are critical of, you know, the way Bitcoiners get on and their attitude towards things and their degree of conviction and uh, all that kind of stuff. I don't think they appreciate that. Like, First of all, that a lot of that is happening naturally, and what the, I think the more interesting question is: Why is this thing inspiring such consistent behavior? That's a far more interesting question than just like, you know, why is one particular person acting weird or crazy in my my Twitter feed? But I think the other is like, I feel like those people discount the degree to which like your determination to get this thing over the line, even if just for yourself, your determination to make that decision to you know, go down with the ship, that, that, that sort of attitude might actually be, uh, if not critical, but like some, somehow instrumental or somehow influential in, in, if not the, if not the success of this thing, but perhaps the degree or the speed or the, you know, it's influential in some way. And, uh, I, I feel like oftentimes the, the haters kind of discount that and 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 brush it aside without the proper consideration. Yeah, I think it's critical. I think it it's uh, the will of Bitcoiners will make it succeed. Um, if you have a money that doesn't have a passionate people who almost treat it like as their highest value, and you have another group with the money where they do treat it as their highest value, I can tell you which one will win. Right. Because um, yeah, all el if, all else equal, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, I used to say it was an irrational, like my affinity for Bitcoin was irrational, but I kind of see it as rational in the big picture of how Bitcoin can succeed and needs as many citizens of Bitcoin as possible. Um, and yeah, if you make that decision, it's up to everyone. They can make their own choice. No one's going to force them. But if you make the decision to join this awesome uh, nation of like, people who use this amazing tool and yeah, you're just going to benefit. So people will gradually see who benefits and who loses. And um, I think more and more people will come to understand uh, why Bitcoin is so important. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And as I often say, I think the, the benefit, the, the benefits rather than, you know, let's say the economic or, monetary rationale will suck in far more people because, you know, whether it's all the different use cases or, 
ways of economic inclusion or making money that kind of stuff that are granted by the innovation that's going to happen with lightning will be far more compelling to 99% of the world population than, you know, understanding why and understanding the evolution of money and the significance of, of an upgraded money, let's say, notwithstanding that like inflation is definitely one of those, uh, things that necessitate people act, you know, it's, it's the type of pain that fosters them to think differently. But even then, I mean, there's plenty of examples where inflation has been crazy for many years and a lot of people just kind of put up with it or they, or they at least retreat and are comfortable with the, the ways it's always been handled, you know, like land and real estate and barter. And I think at a certain point, like that will shift because the efficiency and the size and how obvious the big, the benefits of the parallel Bitcoin system will be, there'll be perhaps like kind of a watershed moment where it's almost impossible to ignore it. But up until that point, I think it'll be just the experience of anything to do with value and the experience of, of just your daily life that's imbued with this system of value will be so far superior that like people will just opt in because they're incentivized both economically, socially, and perhaps in other means to do so. Yeah, that makes me think of uh, like people. I've been thinking about people who buy Bitcoin. Like, do we want people who are not Bitcoiners to buy Bitcoin? Uh, that's basically the question in my head. And um, I don't really care because I, I don't they you they'll either become Bitcoiners or they won't have Bitcoin anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is like, if someone buys Bitcoin and has no interest in treating Bitcoin as money, mm -hmm. then at some point there's a good chance they're going to just sell when it goes up. Mm -hmm. And then it creates this artificial price so that Bitcoiners have to pay more to buy their Bitcoin. So to me, what makes Bitcoin extremely valuable is the amount of Bitcoiners who own Bitcoin uh, because they are intending to use it as money and they will, again, have the infinite uh, demand for it. So they collect it forever and they will, they will spend it. I will spend it. Um, but I'll always try to have more at the end of the day. I'll try to earn more and provide more value than what I'm consuming. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what leads to it being, um, a long-term have like having its value price in us dollars or whatever, having it more stable and more, uh, reliable than just the kind of cyclical, Pump and, pump and dump situation it's in right now. Yeah, totally. I, I agree with that completely. I mean, those are the people that basically give it its value because they are demanding it for so many different things and so highly, you know? So, but again, when you're monetizing something from zero, you're going to have speculators and you're going to have people that don't understand it. And you're going to have people that are just trying to make a quick fiat buck. And that's just the nature of the beast. And so that means there's going to be volatility for, for a time. And maybe forever, but most likely, I think that will peter out as the as more and more people appreciate it for what it is, and it kind of creates that more stable floor. And as it becomes a larger portion of global money stock or global wealth, let's say, um, then you'll need, you know, then it'll stabilize for that reason as well, because whatever percentages, you know, are those people are are, are those kind of speculative moves will be relatively less in comparison to the whole. Now, when, how long of a, a time period that takes to, to play out, you know, who knows if it's 
this decade or decades or it's hard to imagine it's longer than decades because i think again the the efficiencies that and the benefits that bitcoin provides will just be so so apparent that i can't see the cat kind of staying in the bag for decades and decades of long of a period but you know who knows i mean it's a crazy it's a crazy clown world out there so uh people can perhaps keep their heads stuck in the sand for for quite a while you know what's interesting a moment ago you were saying um we we're talking about this kind of identifying with bitcoin the nation more generally and of course people have characterized bitcoin as a nation or as a religion or all sorts of things and it's really interesting to think about and i often do like why it is that people ascribe so many so much meaning to this thing and therefore kind of in that way tether their identity to it um and you know that's something you want to be i think careful of but also not just dismiss out of hand like i think there's a very legitimate reason for doing that and and, and most likely very meaningful and beneficial ones but if you just look at how like and this is kind of a trite observation but you talk about bitcoin as a nation and like bitcoin has a flag now not everyone has signed off on it but the you know the the sovereign flag, I think Matt uses it for uh, Citadel Dispatch, but I can't remember who developed it, but it's the black and orange with the little like castle turret or something on it. And we have our sort of like sayings, right? Don't trust, verify and strengthen numbers. And, you know, it's like all these things are being slowly being emerging and they're being kind of tested in the the social and the memosphere to see like how resonant they are with the the fundamental ideas or at least the fundamental ways in which people are thinking about this thing and then if they pass that test if they stand the test of time a little bit they kind of get attached to this thing and over time the amorphous blob becomes a far more identifiable entity you know in that it's like and of course it would because people are looking to understand what it is they're so interested in they're so curious about they're so they find so meaningful and i think it's almost a natural process that you would that would attract other things that one represented or or help communicate it or or our or our yeah a representation of it in some way, and then help you further uh, establish your relationship with it in, in some weird way. So, not that I want to recreate the nation state model of flags and anthems and and all that stuff because uh, maybe that's been more divisive than it has been unifying. But it is interesting, you know just to be think, a part of this phenomenon and see it all play out. As long as you're worshiping virtue, then I think it's fine. Wow. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Um, uh, here's a question. Do you, what do you think the population of Bitcoin country is right now? Pretty low, to be honest. Uh, I would agree. You know, they they say like 150 million people hold Bitcoin uh, in the world. And that's like people that have five bucks to everyone else, I guess. But the people that would um, jive with a conversation like this or nod along. I mean, this is totally arbitrary. I have no way of knowing this, but like it, my gut would say... In, like in the tens of thousands? Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, because if it ever if it ever approaches a million, then 
you can only imagine what happens when you have a million people who save their wealth in Bitcoin. Um, there's no way they're getting one Bitcoin each per year. Um, right. And then when you look at, so I look at like the UTXO set size. So that's, do you know what a, like, you know what a UTXO is? So like mm-hmm. the number that exists right now is around 80 million. Um, so that means uh, there's got to be less than 80 million people who are holding their keys to their Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means like if you're a Bitcoiner, there's a good chance you have 100 to 1,000 uh, to 1,000 U- different UTXOs. Um, so then you like, yeah, it's just there can't be that many, I guess, is the, is the result. Um, but I hope, yeah, if we can just keep growing the Bitcoiner size, that's the most important thing, I think, to the success. Um, but as a software developer, I'm going to spend more and more time trying to improve the user interface because I, I do still want to like give people the best experience when they get exposed to Bitcoin and then hopefully lead them to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, I think right now we're really far from we're really far from the user interface that it needs uh, in terms of like, if I want to tip my barber in Bitcoin, uh, I still don't think there's an acceptable way to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's like truly effortless. I mean, if you look at, I like to look at uh, the internet or like email and compare the, how that used to be and how it developed and then looking at how that would apply to Bitcoin, the user experience. So like when email first came out, you'd run, you'd run your own email server. uh, And it was just a very manual process. And I think we're still very much in that stage. When you talk about lightning, the fact people like lightning is the same as talking about SMTP and people are not going to think about lightning, nor will they think about SMTP uh, when they send emails. So I think a big part of that will probably be Fediment um, because it allows you to, uh, like it has the future where you could just download an app, someone sends it to you, it's there right away. And then hopefully the interface will make it clear what you own and what, like how you should custody it and like gradually kind of push people towards more and more um, like uh, sovereign ways of holding their Bitcoin because I don't know if you know much about Fediment, but it's non-custodial um, or sorry, they it's, custody, it, you don't custody. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like a multi-party custody model with like uh, like community custody sort of model, right? Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, what I like about it is it gives us a framework under which the entire planet could use Bitcoin because the Lightning Network, it would be completely impossible um, given its current state. I don't know. There's stuff about channel, uh, channel factories. I don't know how that would work. But in its current state, you can't have everyone opening channels on the Bitcoin base layer. Um, mm-hmm. It's just too slow for that. So if you want to onboard the entire planet, Fediment can handle it, which is which is nice. Uh, but then, of course, it's losing the sovereignty, the um, owning your own uh, keys. Um, but yeah, I think that it 
it's yeah, it's one of the most exciting, but also scariest parts of Bitcoin development right now. Cause it's like people, when it goes to convenience, then people use Gmail. And if Fediment turns into, if there's a in, implementation of Fediment that is the new Gmail, like it's the easiest to use, the most popular, and people just all use that, then whoever's running that is going to end up with a lot of control. Right. Right. And exactly. there's a huge risk there. So, yeah. But the, as long as we're careful and when you consider that, if you have funds on one fediment, you can move it to another fediment instantly and you can have tools that could automatically do that regularly so that you're not keeping your money in someone else's custody for too long or too much of it in, like you could create a fraction of how much you wanna trust a certain fediment. Um, it will at least enable having the user interface that will, people will be like, okay, this is insanely easy. Like I downloaded this app and it's just sending me Bitcoin, uh, or I can send it and there's no cost. And then if you want to take the steps, um, after the fact, then you can. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see how that develops as well. Obviously it goes without saying that there's going to be a lot of different doorways into Bitcoin and about how, like at the beginning, perhaps there wasn't, right? Like you, your option was to buy Bitcoin and custody it yourself, basically, or or, or hold it onto on an exchange. But I think as these options develop, they're going to appeal to different people. And, it, you know, it might very well be the case, even though like we see the thesis, we, we are projecting into the future, couldn't possibly be more bullish and just, you know, buying and custodying Bitcoin as much as we can. But I think it's quite possible that the value-enabled web, whether that's via Lightning or another layer or whatever, is just going to be so compelling and fun and new and novel to a lot of people that, you know, maybe the next billion come on and they just have like a, a hot Lightning wall with a hundred bucks in it. You know, it's not their channels or anything like that. And they do it to play their video games or to interact on social media or to publish and consume content or whatever. And they just, it's, it's, it's first it's fun. It's like, wow, like I can take the, the money that I made playing world of Warcraft. And like, you know, every time you kill a character, like the coins pop, I, I haven't played video games for ages, so <laughs> forgive me, but you know, the money in games and I can take that and then I can, uh, you know, boost a podcaster that I like, or, and even that's super rudimentary. So like, and then I can just, I can order food from it because, you know, Uber Eats, whatever, accepts Bitcoin, you know, like just the fact that so many of your interactions will be connected by the same value layer. And I think initially that'll just be like novel and fun, whether it's from an income perspective or work or, or probably not that. And then the light bulb moments will, may happen, you know, and then, then people will get more serious about uh, looking through their, looking at it through the lens of their wealth and their future and that kind of stuff. But I just really think that uh, the the possibilities for online experiences are going to be so improved by having this value enabled component uh, made possible by Bitcoin and additional layers that like maybe like you won't have to worry about 12 words and all that jazz at the beginning. Like, yes, you're taking more risk and less, yes, you may lose your funds, but you're just playing around with this. And as it becomes more compelling, then you, you further go on the journey of understanding it and figuring out how to custody things more securely and figuring out which kind of way you want to go. But, um, cause people respond to fun, right? Like 
yeah. people respond respond to silly people respond to entertaining a lot of people don't respond to like dry boring thesis about why everything's fucked and how <laughs> this is going to fix it uh, that's for you know us kind of perverse people but um I mean, and you can look at the history of the internet and social media and stuff. And it's like just stupid shit becomes insanely popular, like Snapchat. I've never used Snapchat or whatever, but like it's as far as I know, it started as like you take a video, it's you take a video and you send it and it disappears after like 10 seconds or or whatever. It's like, okay, that that sounds kind of silly. Yeah, it is kind of silly, but like a billion people downloaded it and used it for whatever reason because people are silly and and that's how you know that's that's how we we seem to to interact and so i think the degree to which the value enabled stuff will amplify those experiences and generate really novel ones that also have like a lot more interoperability components that's relevant in their actual life because we're dealing with money here not just information uh could possibly be like a huge impetus for a lot more people flooding in yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. Um, the it makes me a bit sad to know how much mental or how much talent has been wasted on the shitcoin uh, industry. Um, knowing that, like the entrepreneurial builders in tech are largely on the west coast, and so much of that has been getting funding for um, just building, just a total waste of building. Um, and imagine if they had to put those creative brains towards something using Bitcoin. It's, um, I yeah, agree, so. but that regret felt by some of those people, be they investors or, or developers themselves, might just give them that extra invigoration when they finally see the light. You know, they might be extra motivated because they they'll be trying to make up for lost time or lost revenue or finances or whatever so i'm i'm yeah th this goes back to our point about like the peace that bitcoin instills right like i'm confident that bitcoin and bitcoiners will find its way in the end and everything will you know water will find its level and we'll be all right and that doesn't mean to take it easy and that doesn't mean not to think adversarially and all that kind of stuff but that's again like more broadly how I think things are going to play out. So that itself gives me a sense of peace and I don't worry about or spend time thinking about just how much time and capital has been wasted on so much stuff, not just in shitcoin land, but particularly in shitcoin land because retail investors have lost a ton of money and a lot of time has been wasted. And, and basically it's just served uh, the VCs and the, the scammers that made off with a ton of undeserved money, let's say. But- what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, I'm curious, do you have a roadmap for yourself personally about how you intend to use Bitcoin in the future? I'll explain a bit more. Like, sure. uh, right now I'm new to Bitcoin. Uh, so for the past two years, I've just been putting a lot of my savings into Bitcoin. And then I see that in probably two or three years, my goal is to keep only Bitcoin and hold no, uh, no fiat currency whatsoever. Mm -hmm. If needed, I might use a credit card and then pay it off with Bitcoin using like in Canada, there's full Bitcoin for doing that. Um, and then I'm hoping within five or so years to start seeking out only Bitcoin, com only companies that accept Bitcoin to spend money 
Um, and yeah, I'm just kind of trying to see a, a transition from like just saving in Bitcoin to eventually uh, only using Bitcoin, only supporting people who participate in Bitcoin. Um, yeah. So that's my question. Do you have a roadmap, anything like that? or I don't do have a roadmap, things? but my, my general um, like position or approach is like, uh, I want to be using as much Bitcoin as possible. Now that like, it depends where you are. Like in some place, if you're in El Salvador, that's pretty possible, even though they're like, some people still only accept cash and that kind of thing. But you have ATMs where you can get cash for Bitcoin and stuff like that. So you could live fully on Bitcoin in El Salvador. In other places, you have to do the the gift card game or, you know, there, it's really starting to become far less, uh, far more frictionless. But um, it, it's it's still, there's still a certain degree of friction, especially, de again, depending on where you are. So, but ideally, like I, I would want to be using only Bitcoin. Um because why would I want to be using another money? Like I, I and for me, it's, you know, because people say, well, don't you want to save in Bitcoin and spend the bad stuff? And it's like, yeah, but you're, if you're only taking in Bitcoin, or even if you're not like whatever fiat you have, that could be Bitcoin right now. It's just that, mm -hmm. you know, for, for your expenses or whatever you're leaving in a fiat, but I, of course, I'd rather have my whole life just be on Bitcoin for yeah. many reasons. I'd like all my savings. I, I, I don't want to hold any fiat balances because um, well, what, I mean, at that level, like where it's such a, if you're holding a small cash position, it's like less than 1% of your savings, let's say it's not really material in terms of Bitcoin's price swings, whether they, they be down mm -hmm. or up, but I, I just want to opt out of the systems that I believe are immoral or unethical or generating outcomes in the world that I deem to be either suboptimal, 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 or, or broadly speaking, negative. Like I, I don't want to participate in those games basically. And so opting out everywhere where you're tacitly or explicitly or implicitly contributing to those things, I think is the way you end up getting the world you want to see. So only using the money that you think is ethical and only doing business with the companies that you think are ethical and only, you know, like all the way down. Uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but it, I am on that journey. Like the same with all the software stuff you use and whatever, like whether it's Gmail or Apple or whatever, like you have this, I think Bitcoin is a peaceful revolution and I'm for peaceful revolutions. And the way you do them most effectively is you just starve your opponent. And whether that's the central banks and the issues, issuers of fiat currency, and whether that's the the governments that you know parasitically prey on you, or whether that's the big tech who's you know selling your data and subjecting you to algorithms and all that kind of stuff, the only real approach is to one tune out to the extent that you can, like ignore them and not let them interrupt that piece we were referring to before, but also starve them. Don't give them your resources, time, attention, data, money none of it. And if we all do that, we don't have to wait for some politician to enact a new law or, you know, whatever. We we determine the outcome that we have and the freedoms that we have and the people we want to interact with and the culture and the society and the market we get as a result. We we by starving them and having pent up demand for people that do do things ethically to the extent we want to 
you know, purchase those products and services, then that's how we do it. That's how we maximize the incentive for the so-called good. However, we might define that is we, we generate that pent up demand by opting out of all that other stuff. And then someone at some point will come along and service that demand. And if it's sufficient, we'll say, Hey, yes, the product and service is one that I have, I derive value from and it's predicated on or, or, or offered with ethical standards or, you know, ethical standards that I'm, that I accept. So I'm a customer now. And that's, that's how I, you know, I, I hate to, I don't want to be too, too presumptive to offer advice to people usually, but like, if you're critical of things in the world, I think that's the only real way you get any different result than what we have. You have to starve what you don't support and you have to feed what you do. And Bob's your uncle. You have a word, a world erected of, of things that you support, especially, you know, the longer time goes on. So to answer your question, no, no, no timeline, but uh, <laughs> opt out as, as, as much as possible and, and use Bitcoin as much as possible. That idea of starving the enemy, I guess, is uh, very much why I asked the question is since uh, Corey Clips, Clipstein was talking about uh, having a minority that is like very passionate about something and how that can sway things. So I'm just thinking like as Bitcoiners, if there's a point where you like, Bitcoiners are calling grocery stores and saying, do you accept Bitcoin? Okay, I'm not shopping here. <laughs> if that happens enough, then uh, you're forcing their hand. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm wondering. Like, and you're seeing it. I mean, that's kind of the, the, that's how the circular economy develops, right? Because let's take an easy one, but this has happened in like Texas and parts of the States where a lot of Bitcoiners want high quality meat and they prefer to work with other Bitcoiners. And so what's happened, this meat initiative has popped up where, you know, you, you can buy high quality meat raised by yep. a Bitcoiner and you can pay Bitcoin for it. And that's, that's that pent up demand being exercised. And it'll probably initially be like those, those small sort of local um, circular economies where, you know, a Bitcoiner that sells wine uh, who, who I've had on this podcast and, or in a Bitcoiner that sells meat and a Bitcoiner that sells Whatever, like, because it's becoming the case now that like there's Bitcoiners that do all sorts of things, right? And they want Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to offer yeah. their products and services and people are going to demand them. And later on, as it, as it grows, you know, to your point, the normal market participants will catch on and they'll be like, well, I want some of that. How do I get it? And it'll be by operating along certain ethical standards, most likely. And it'll be about accepting Bitcoin and it'll be about, you know, they'll have to respond to that that demand and the bigger Bitcoin gets and the more wealthy, more wealthy Bitcoiners become and the, you know, the, the greater purchasing power Bitcoin has, the more that will happen. And people will just be responding to those demands. And I, again, I think that's the, 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 the easiest path to get to the place that it seems like we all want to go, which is a more fair, a more free, a more consensual world. Yeah, that reminded me of another thing on my roadmap of Bitcoin transition that I intend to do that might be useful for other people is um, I'm going to eventually tell my employer, I'll give them some fair warning that I want my contract to be uh, denominated in Bitcoin. Not just, I don't want my pay in Bitcoin. It could be, in, I want it to be in Bitcoin, but that's not the point. The point is that it actually is measured in Bitcoin, my salary 
is based in Bitcoin. And they can, I'll agree to like, you can renegotiate it once a year or once every two years. But uh, if they don't want to do that, then I'll leave. And the intention there is they have to buy Bitcoin um, ahead of time if they want to pay right. my salary that's denominated in Bitcoin. So as long as people own Bitcoin, it's easy to do contracts in it. But when you don't own it, it's hard to do those contracts. Um, so that's another way that I see that I'd like to get to in the future. So paid in Bitcoin and salary measured in Bitcoin. <laughs> live, live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah. Um, I like it. Yeah, the intention is really to force people's hand because if I want nothing to do with fiat dollars, that's critical. I can't ever accept it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to exchange exchange it for Bitcoin. I want to only work for the ethical money that has mm -hmm. unfortunable costliness that wasn't printed to debase someone else's money. And yeah, I'd really like to avoid ever touching it within, I don't know, as soon as possible. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I love that. Are you are you you mentioned a couple of times that you're you want to or you are working on bitcoin related software or solutions. I'm assuming is, are you and is that your prime work or are you is that like a side hustle? So I I've, I've done some work with uh, a bitcoin company. I won't name them. Um just small little uh like side hustle thing. Um and I work for just a regular software agency full-time. Um, but I have been studying up on actually building tools. Um, and I am working on something. It's kind of tangential to Bitcoin, but not directly. Um, it's just uh, more so in line with what, do you know John Carvalho? Mm -hmm. John Carvalho. Uh, he's, his work with Synonym. Um, I was listening to a podcast that inspired me about like, your private and public key being your identity and what, what we can accomplish in that, um, just using that. And then like, if, if I know your public key, you can sign data and you can publish it. And I don't care where the data comes from, but I can know that that data is yours. So basically around that idea, I'm kind of working on a side project right now, just to explore uh, what's possible using, like when people take custody of their identity, um, and this, this very much comes back to the 12 words. 12 words is not only your um, property, but 12 words could be your identity mm -hmm. and no one can confiscate it. And yeah. if, if you have a server, you can, it could be a third-party server that's serving your blocks of data. Um, if they are uh, compromised, it doesn't matter if you own your identity because you can just start sending out blocks from another server and it's impossible to censor that. Um, and I not only for um, just like following tweets or something, but it can also be used for like, I think it, it could be used for coordinate coordination on the internet. So like protocol negotiation, I don't know if this is getting too technical, but like if you want to receive uh, money in a specific protocol and I want to send it, say you use protocols A, B, and C, and I use C, D, and E, then this could be used to like find out that we both use C and behind the scenes, use that protocol for sending money or sending a message or whatever. Mm. Um, what I'm really looking at is how we can make new protocols easier to start using. Um, so like right now, if you build a new protocol and you're like, you have to get someone to download the app and all that crap, 
but we want to be able to have more experimentation in protocols because uh, I guess I keep saying the word protocol. Protocols to me are the key to decentralized web. Um, blockchain stuff is all nonsense. Uh, it's all about having these open protocols because a protocol anyone can use is just a set of rules, just like our nodes follow a set of rules. And the more experimentation we have on protocols, the more uh, decentralized we can make the internet basically. Um, so yeah, I've been kind of sucked into that, very tangential to Bitcoin. Uh, and I definitely intend to, um, in the future, look at how it can be used for payments specifically. But right now, it's a lot more broad. Yeah, I love that. And you know, it's not it. It's technically it's all that stuff is is over my head, or I haven't spent the time to really investigate it yet. But just on the surface, it makes sense to me that in an environment where people are going to end up having a high degree of or like very carefully custody a piece of data like your your seed phrase let's say or your seed words how like how what could that then enable like how much other stuff in the digital world could you attach to that you know for access rights or whatever and knowing that like because it's so you know you'll be able to maybe port your identity or move around different proto pro protocols or platforms or what have you with your money, with your identity, with your data and all that kind of stuff by virtue of having that one piece of information, one piece of access information so secure, right? And that's the thing that you, you never lose. And by virtue of that, uh, a lot more flexibility or accessibility or something like that opens up for what has traditionally been just like a bunch of walled gardens and a bunch of siloed information and a you know billion different passwords and a billion different identities like maybe all of that will be dissolved and just as you know you'll be able to take the sats that you earn in world of warcraft and buy a pizza with it you'll be able to take your followers or your identity from one platform and bring them to another or you know, again, the details are, are foggy and it's not, it's above my pay grade, but it seems, it seems sensible enough to me. Like the premise seems logical enough and hopefully people like you will work on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you're, you're bang on. Um, the, the idea of like, I think seed signer is such a great tool and such a important, yeah, such an important tool. And it's uh, just the idea that you can scan some data and sign it in an offline way. And then it goes back onto the internet. And to me, that's the key. It's like this offline thing, your identity, if it's done properly, that thing is always offline, never touches the internet and you sign. And then from there, you can always, of course, have like, uh, like you could have a hot public key or private key um, and your cold one. And the cold mm -hmm. one is used just for signing the main critical things. And then, um, and then from, the hot one that can actually manage more uh, of your day-to-day. -day. Right. Um, and then the other thing that's really exciting in this realm that also John Carvalho is talking about is the web of trust. So that's the idea that um, now that we have this public key, private key as your identity, um, once I have said that I trust you and then, or you say that you've trust, trust, sorry, I say I trust you I can also see everyone you trust and then that just branches out. So if mm -hmm. you have 10 hops there, that, that covers the entire planet um, in terms of 
creating that web. Um, but that could definitely be a way of replacing uh, like DNS servers, which are like monopolistic and rent seeking and just crap. Like if you come up with a business uh, name, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that you have to then check if the domain is available. And if not, you change your business name. Like um, the idea with this web of trust is that I would be able to, if John has a business with whatever name he wants, I can see, oh, this is John's business. And I can visit because uh, all I'll have to do is find out what IP address you've signed mm -hmm. to know like, oh, this is where it goes. And then the IP address would be completely hidden of course, like it's lower level stuff, but it can do it through verification of like, I trust this is John and I trust that this is his business. And it's really removed so much potential for scam because it's really hard to get into uh, a web of trust um, it, as long as you're diligent. Um, I think that that's a really, another really exciting um, part of this like decentralization and, and just what, public and private keys being more, more familiar to people, what that can bring about. Yeah, man, it's, I mean, you could think about the possibilities forever and I, I often do. And I, I just find it so exciting that so much more power and control and freedom, the capacity to bring so much of that back to the individual is emerging, you know, the, the, the primary thrust through Bitcoin and then a lot of other stuff likely as a result and what you know again i think we all kind of suspect that the initial tearing away from the fiat world and the tech world as it's been established up to this point could be somewhat uncomfortable and potentially somewhat tumultuous but it, you know it's uh all of these things are basically freedom enabling privacy enabling which is obviously freedom enabling wealth creating abundance accessing uh you know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech technologies, and they're all kind of emerging simultaneously. And I, uh, I look forward to what that future causes all of us to consider and how it, you know, we, we started this conversation off with how Bitcoin has changed your perception, you know, how it's brought you that peace, dialed down the noise, allowed you to focus on what's important, change your values a little bit. And so when that is more developed and when that's had time to to work upon us and when you layer on those other um, services or products or technologies that have similar benefits, where does our attention go? Where do, where do our resources flow? What do we determine to be most worthy of our, our limited resources? And, and what do we end up wanting to create, express, you know, broadly speaking, do? I'm, you know, yeah. I have no idea what the, what the answer really is to that, but I'm super jazzed to be confronted with the, the question. Yeah. And talking about like freedom and freedom enabling technology, that reminds me of like when I first got into crypto stuff, like I was interested in learning about it. Um, it was so apparent right away that all of these projects talking about DeFi decentralization but no one gives a damn about decentralization and no one cares about like any of the values that are important uh, in any of these projects. So it's like, uh, it was very obvious very early to me that like, these are not like, if the crypto industry cared about, uh, cared about decentralization and privacy and self-sovereignty and all those things, the top two cryptocurrencies would be Bitcoin and then would be Monero. 
and most of the others would be gone. But the fact that uh, Monero, which again, I don't support Monero now, uh, but the idea that fungibility should be at the base layer is a worthwhile idea to compete. Uh, but most of the other ones are not even in the ballpark. Like they just don't care about that stuff. It's just shiny new tech. Um, and like, yeah, someone who was interested in like the Pine phone and the Librem phone, which are like phones that run Linux. Um, I was very interested in those because they are removing the monopoly from Apple and, uh, and, and just, uh, yeah, just having those values coming into crypto, it was just so obvious immediately that this cares not at all about decentralization. It was mm -hmm. very obvious that it's just a new way of making money um, by printing money. <laughs> yeah, a, a money printer for everyone. Buy my sushi yeah. token and buy my <laughs> whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And but I, I, mean I, uh, I was just going to say, I wonder if, uh, investors like Nick Carter who invest in um, some of these projects if it's a lack of technical understanding that promotes it so it's like it's for one it's making money and two uh, it's making money and it's like too complicated for them to understand so instead of like looking at what will actually accomplish whatever they want it's just like okay I'll, I'll buy into this thing um, yeah, I wonder about that. If it's like a technical lack of understanding. Um, yeah, I think. And it, even uh, so, go ahead. No, you you finish. I was just going to say, even like looking at um, Ethereum's roadmap and the how complicated that stuff is. Um, as a developer, I would be embarrassed to like present something so complicated um, because it normally means that it's it's no good. Like you have to simplify things. Like the Bitcoin white paper was nine pages. That is genius. Um, and just to, uh, some people can get sucked into thinking complicated means intelligent or that complicated means sophisticated. Whereas it's like the opposite of the truth. Um, and I feel like that's a huge problem in Ethereum where it's just like people don't quite understand what it is. They don't know what it's capable of. So they kind of assume that the people building it must be very intelligent and building something very important or whatever. And it's a way that people getting sucked into it. Um, yeah, I definitely think that's that's a lot of what gets people into those things. I agree. And um, I think that's part of the reason why so many so-called smart people miss Bitcoin, because it is in a- <laughs> So fascinating. So, well, yeah, but also so simple. And like a lot of people think, well, surely- based on my intellectual capacity and the the magnitude of the problems that we're facing, you know, like the, the solution has to be hard to see. It has to be complex. Like it has to be uniquely available to those able, like, you know, with the prowess to see it, let's say. And um, so I think those, those, you could say those people tend to overthink it in a way combined with what you said, which is like, there's just a black box of like all this tech that people don't understand. And so like, you know, uh, a skinny guy that looks a bit weird, you know, sure that he's got to be the genius that, that like knows all about this stuff. And you're basically just, you know, betting on him and thinking like, well, he certainly looks one of those, like one of those weird geniuses that is way smarter than everyone. So I guess I'll believe the same. And you end up missing, you know, the, the very simple, uh, answer that is right in front of you, as you said, in, in the Bitcoin white paper and in what Bitcoin represents. And I also, you know, I, 
you mentioned you bring up like uh, Nick as an investor, and I, I don't really want to shit on on anybody here. I don't have much in, interest in that, but it is fascinating to me that typically the ones that uh, end up taking that kind of approach, they reveal themselves to be. I mean, we're all imperfect, but they reveal reveal themselves to be perhaps less humble and more egotistical than one seems to need to be to accept the truth about Bitcoin. And maybe that's a weird way to say it, but like the, those types seem to always lack humility. And I think that's what causes them in a sense to like go to those other places. And rather than, you know, just realizing that Bitcoin is the thing of value here. And then another criticism that I often hear and again, we could spend like another four hours on this particular topic. So I won't, I'll just, you know, <laughs> skim over it. But, you know, people will criticize like the Bitcoiners that get too hardcore about things. They'll be like, guys, chill. Bitcoin is not a belief system. It's just a protocol. It's just a new form of money. And I like it too, but there are other things in the world. And I think it's like, no, you don't get it. You are a belief system. You are. And you impose those things onto things that you interface with in the world. You develop a relationship with things, yes, and inanimate things based on your belief system. And the question is, well, why? What about those things resonate with, with your belief system? And I think that, again, like the, it, it almost comes down to a certain like humility in a certain respect. Like, Are you willing to see, how should I put it? Well, it kind of goes back to what we said earlier. First, are you willing to see that this is a participatory relationship, right? It's, there's no, it's not like just two separate entities. Like you, it is what it is because of you and you in turn are what you are because of it. And that's kind of the relationship of interfacing with objects and ideas and other people in the world. Like we're, we are mediums of exchange in that way, human beings, like we're constantly taking in data from the outer world, putting it through the inner filter, putting it back out. And we're the medium that's doing that. You know, you might say that that's kind of the idea of the logos, you know, in, in Christianity or in philosophy. And uh, I feel like those people that, that criticize and say, like, guys, settle down. It's not a belief system. They, they fail to appreciate that element that everything is, and that it does matter how, how you think about things in terms of what they become. And uh, I can't help but think there's an element of, of arrogance or ego that, causes them to be somewhat blind to that and therefore maybe not place sufficient importance on or maybe not value certain attributes or characteristics or principles in certain things when they are there because it's almost like they're somewhat blind to them in themselves and therefore it's difficult to see them out in the world again this is a super long conversation but i wanted to get that little snippet out off my chest yeah i couldn't have said it better <laughs> Um, well, we're coming up on two hours here. Did we not cover something that uh, you wanted to discuss or no, this was great. Last, I was last words before pretty we... nervous. Not a, <laughs> I'm not a public speaker by any means. So it was great. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, go, uh, cook some lunch. <laughs> yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I thought you did great. And, uh, I appreciate Thanks. you putting up your hand and coming on for a chat. And, uh, it's always great to, to connect with other newfies, especially other Bitcoiner newfies. So uh, yeah, love the conversation and, um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. All right, brother. And yeah. Talk to Take you later. Care. See ya. See ya.